Welcome to the show, folks. We're currently going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last time, Jesus performed his very first miracle. He performed it at a wedding in Cana, but he chose to perform this miracle in secret. The only people who witnessed this miracle were his mother, four disciples, and the servants who were there serving people at the wedding feast. Six empty water pots of stone were filled with water at Jesus' prompting, and the water was turned into wine. And during this review, I wasn't going to get into the nitty-gritty. Normally when we do a review of the last broadcast, I just hit the highlights and then move on. But i got to be honest with you folks, in preparation for this study, the hardest part was trying to figure out what to get into and what not to get into during just the review. Because we're going to get into something today that hangs on some of the meaning behind what we covered last time. But if I spend too much time on it, then today's show will be nothing more than a rerun of the last one. And I don't want to do that. So bear with me here as I try, as I attempt, to quickly review the last study. If it sounds repetitive, just bear with me because it'll hang on something really neat that we're going to get into today. Jesus' first miracle by itself wouldn't seem to be that big a deal. I mean, compared to casting out demons, walking on water, healing terminal illnesses, (laughs) raising people up from the dead... Compared to all of that, turning the water into wine doesn't come very high on our attention spans, doesn't really hit our radar. But the fact that it was Jesus' first miracle should cause us to pause and look at this just a little bit. Because there's a more subtle meaning behind it that turns out to be symbolic of Jesus' greatest miracle, one that affects you and me on a personal level today. This was Jesus' first miracle. Why? He chose to do it in secret. Only an inside group witnessed this. Why? It happened at a wedding. Why? And what's the significance behind turning water into wine anyway? What does all of that mean? Well, we find out later that wine is symbolic of Jesus' blood. The water was turned into a symbol of Jesus' voluntary shed blood. What does the water symbolize? All throughout the Bible, from the Great Flood in Genesis to John the Baptist submerging people in water, it symbolizes the washing away of sin by the Holy Spirit. Ooh! Water, being a symbol of the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, was turned into wine, a symbol of Jesus' blood. What was that water put into? Six empty water pots of stone. All throughout the Bible, from the number of days of creation in Genesis to the mark of the beast in Revelation, the number six always symbolizes something that is incomplete. So something that was incomplete, something that was empty and made of stone, was filled with water that turned into wine. What does this miracle symbolize, folks? Those of us who are saved, those of us who are called the bride of Christ. That's why it happened at a wedding. It's also why Jesus kept this miracle hidden. Behind the scenes. Because unlike the grandstanding of casting out demons or walking on water, being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a miracle that's only observable or recognizable to a select few. Specifically the bride of Christ, those of us who were saved. The world doesn't recognize salvation as a miracle. But to those of us who were saved, it certainly is. It's the greatest miracle. And this symbolism will be noticeable again when we get to what we're going to get into in today's study. Stay tuned. Now, it was a few days after the wedding, after this miracle, that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But when he got there, he found merchants who were using religion and the temple court to make money. 
So he drove them all out of there with a lash of cords that he made into a whip. Caused a pretty big ruckus, too. Pretty big stir. Then the religious leaders showed up with their typical indignant, how dare you speech. They asked him for proof that he had the authority to do what he had just done. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Jesus was talking about his body. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what he was doing with his hands, but every time I read that, I imagine him pointing to himself when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. They asked for proof of authority. Jesus gave it to them. I'm the prophesied Messiah. How's that for authority? But the religious leaders didn't get it, and they thought he was talking about the temple structure there in Jerusalem, but they should have gotten it. If they had known and understood the Old Testament like they were supposed to have, they would have known exactly who and what he was, but they didn't. And Jesus knew that, so he didn't waste any more time with them. And it was at this time that he began his ministry. Jesus started performing miracles as signs of proof to back up his claims that he was who he said he was. And then one night, a leader among the religious leaders, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, met Jesus and told him, You must truly be a teacher sent from God because of all the signs and wonders that you perform. But Jesus got straight to the point and told him, Unless a man is born again, he cannot ever be part of the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand what he meant by born again, so Jesus dumbed it down for him and said, Unless a man is born twice, once physically and then once spiritually, then he cannot ever be part of the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked him, how does that work? You know, how is one spiritually reborn? And then Jesus answered his question with a strange answer, folks. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a pretty weird answer. You and I might not have any idea what Jesus was talking about, but Nicodemus did. First of all, the Son of Man was one of the Old Testament titles for the prophesied Messiah. It doesn't mean he was the son of a human male. The Bible doesn't use the word man to define male. That's our present-day ignorance of language getting in the way. The word man was plural for human beings, folks. Mankind. Humanity. You might translate this, son of humanity. Jesus was the Son of God, but he was prophesied to be the son of a virgin who was human. When the Old Testament prophet Daniel was transported into the distant future... He saw Jesus come down from heaven to rule the earth, and Daniel wrote down what he saw. And it says that he saw someone come down that looked like a son of man. He looked human. That blew Daniel away. So the son of man was a well-known Old Testament title for the coming Messiah. Nicodemus knew that. Nicodemus also remembered that story about the serpent in the desert. It's recorded in the fourth book of Moses called Numbers. In that portion of Scripture... Israel had just spoken against God in an absolutely incredible display of ingratitude after everything that God had done for them. So God sent serpents into the land. Many Israelites were bitten, so they immediately repented. They went to Moses and asked him to pray for them, to take away the serpents. Moses prayed, and God gave Moses a very strange remedy. God told Moses to build a serpent made of bronze, and then he told them to nail it to a pole so that anyone who looked at it would be saved. That might sound weird to us, but Levitically and symbolically, it made perfect sense. The serpent was a symbol of sin. The metal bronze was a metal that was specifically used back then to withstand the heat of fire, and fire was a symbol of God's judgment. So a serpent made of bronze was a symbol of God's judgment against sin. And anyone who looked at that symbol of God's judgment against sin was saved. 
that whole event was like a stage play that symbolized the whole predicament that exists between God and the human race. It scaled down in the book of Numbers to make it understandable. The Israelites sinned against God. God sent a curse of death. But then God gave them a remedy to escape that curse. He said, look to the symbol of my judgment against your sin, and I will transfer the debt of your sin onto that symbol, and you will be saved. Well, let's move the decimal point over a few notches. Since the Garden of Eden, the entire human race has been building up a debt of sin against God. And since the Garden of Eden, the entire human race has been cursed with a curse of death. Jesus told Nicodemus that no one can be part of the kingdom of God without being spiritually reborn. Nicodemus asked, how does that happen? And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How was the serpent lifted up? It was nailed to a pole. Jesus is saying the Son of Man has to be lifted up the same way. Isn't that something? When Jesus did get lifted up on that pole, God transferred all of mankind's sin debt over to Jesus. He's our balance transfer. Then Jesus told Nicodemus that God loved the world so much that he even gave up his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. That's the context of the famous John 3.16. And it brings up a couple of crucial points. First of all, God never had any other sons besides Jesus. He's unique. He's God's only begotten son. It's amazing how many religious cults that call themselves Christian that don't believe this. You'd be surprised. But every one of them are easily destroyed with this one little nugget from John 3.16. He's God's only begotten son. The second nugget from John 3.16 that's really amazing the more you think about it, and it's the fact that God chose to give up his only begotten son. God gave him up. We tend to gloss over that because we already know how the story is going to end. Jesus gets resurrected after his death, and he ascends into heaven to be with the Father. Right now he's seated beside the Father. But wait a minute. I thought John 3.16 said that God gave him up. Did God cheat when he said that, since he knew he'd get him back? But back is what? A human. A human with holes in his hands. See, Jesus pre-existed his human birth, and he was with the Father in a way that is so beyond our comprehension that it takes modern physics to even attempt to explain its description. That's recorded in the first three verses of John. And before modern physics came along, Bible scholars sat down and tried to map everything out, and they came up with words like the Trinity. And then they assigned everyone a number. They called the Father the first member of the Trinity. They assigned to the Son the designation of the second member of the Trinity, and they called the Holy Spirit the third member. But the Bible never did any of that. That's just Bible scholars trying to dumb everything down for us so we can understand and talk about it in terms that make sense to us. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning, before time began, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and nothing was made without Him. But then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He became flesh forever. After His resurrection, He tells people to touch Him and says, Hey, I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. 
After that conversation and several other appearances, Jesus ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And then years later, John was transported into heaven for a time so that he could record the book of Revelation. And when John saw Jesus, he still looked human. And as we talked about earlier, Daniel was also transported into the future to see for himself the rule of the Messiah over the earth. And Daniel said that he looked like a son of man. He looked human. So right now, he's with the Father, but not like he was before. Whatever he was before, he will never be that again. What we would call the second member of the Trinity, what John called the Word, he volunteered to lower himself permanently and become part of his Father's creation, a human being who was given the title the only begotten Son of God. And what we would call the first member of the Trinity, the Father, he went along with this. He allowed him to do it. The son volunteered, but the father had to give him up. Why did he give him up? John 3.16 says he did it out of an all-consuming love for his creation. But why did the son do it? You could say it's because the son loved the father, and that's true. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. John chapter 1 told us that nothing was created without Jesus. So it's his creation too. The father and the son loved their creation. The Son volunteered to become a part of that creation to redeem it. And the Father gave him up so that he could. By the way, what about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? What's his role in all of this? He's the one who's personally responsible for our rebirth on a physical and spiritual level. See, when Jesus talks about a spiritual rebirth, whose spirit is he talking about? The Holy Spirit. So all three members of the Trinity take part in our rebirth. You know, we always see the bumper stickers and the billboards and the t-shirts that say, Jesus saves. And even though that's true, and even though it has a nice, churchy, New Testament feel to it, we sometimes forget that there's more to it than that. The Father had to give him up first so that he could save it. And as if that wasn't enough, the Father personally watched from outside time. He watched his own son walk to the cross And then the Father had to personally, from outside time, pick up the entire sin debt of all human history, from the first man who ever sinned to the last man who will ever sin, and then place it on his own son's head just before he was arrested. That was the Father's role. That was his part in all of this. That's what he had to do to get you and me saved. And then Jesus endured the weight of that debt and paid it off. Just before he died, he said, it is finished, paid in full. That was his part in all of this. That's what he had to do to get you and me saved. And then according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, because of our acceptance of that balance transfer, it's the Holy Spirit who comes to permanently live inside our three-dimensional sinful body, redeeming our spirit immediately and continually, and then locking us and sealing us for a future physical redemption. And that's his part in all of this. That's what he has to do to get us saved. All three members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. The Father sanctioned and authorized the balance transfer, the Son paid the balance transfer, and the Holy Spirit seals the balance transfer. And the last crucial point of John 3.16 is the ultimate result. That anyone who would believe in this act, anyone who would trust in it, cling to it, or rely upon it, would never perish. They would never die, but have everlasting life. And in the original Greek, the wording suggests that the activation of that promise begins at the moment of faith. 
In other words, you don't have to wait until you die to get eternal life. You get it at the moment you start believing. Now, we won't get to heaven when we start believing. The physical body has to die first. And the reason why that has to happen is to completely kill off the virus that's in our bodies called sin. You see, there's two problems with sin. There's a problem of accountability of debt to God's justice. We know about that. But then there's a physical hardware compatibility problem. See, our hardware is not compatible with heaven. Jesus took care of the problem of debt. There's no more judgment. But unfortunately, the sin virus is hardwired into our physical bodies. It can't be removed. It can only be destroyed. But at the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit quarantines the sin virus to your body only, your hardware, preserving your software, which is the real you, for a future upload into superior hardware that's in heaven. Unfortunately, we don't get to enjoy our new hardware until the old hardware is turned off. But when it does get turned off, our software won't stop running because it will immediately be uploaded into the new hardware. The eternal life that Jesus is talking about, it begins at the moment of faith. You will continue to live on even after your death. That's why Jesus called it a spiritual rebirth. Because the Holy Spirit becomes one with your software, creating a completely new person. And that new person won't die. Now, there's something else, folks. Something else that I can't help but bring up. And that's what Jesus chose not to include as part of that spiritual rebirth. Jesus didn't say that unless a man cleans up his life and gets his act together, he will not ever be part of the kingdom of God. He didn't say unless a man goes to church, he cannot ever be part of the kingdom of God. And he didn't say unless a man becomes religious, he cannot ever be part of the kingdom of God. I wonder why. Could it be that maybe getting your acts together, cleaning up your life, going to church, becoming religious, has absolutely nothing to do with being spiritually reborn? Did Jesus say, just as the Israelites repented and became religious and never sinned again, so must you do, so that whoever does will not perish? He didn't say that, folks. He said, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will not perish. Who's doing all the work, folks? God is. You don't save yourself. God saves you. See, Jesus told Nicodemus that God didn't send his Son into the world to judge it, but to save it. And anyone who puts their trust in him to be the author of their salvation will not be judged. Now, that is really crucial, folks. Because we tend to think that as soon as we die, God judges our life, and we hope that we get a passing grade. But that's not the case. That's not the way it works. Jesus said the way to heaven is by escaping judgment altogether. And the only way to escape God's judgment is to not be in God's debt. From God's point of view, your debt is either paid in full or it's not. There's no middle ground. We're not capable of paying off that debt ourselves. That's why Jesus became our balance transfer. Either your debt has been transferred over to Jesus, or it hadn't. And that's why Jesus said that anyone who puts their trust in him will not be judged at all, because there's no need to be hauled into court if there's no debt to pay off. There will be no judgment. But then Jesus said something about those who don't accept that balance transfer, who remain in God's debt and disbelieve, Jesus told Nicodemus that they'd been judged already because the light has come into the world and they love the darkness more than the light.
But what does he mean by that? Well, let's be honest, folks. All of us love the darkness a little bit. Some of us love it a little more than others, and some of us love it a lot. That's one of the side effects, one of the symptoms of a genetic defect known as the sin virus that infects all of us. But there are those who love it so much that they have a hatred for the light. They're opposed to the light. They're hostile to it. When Jesus said those who disbelieve, the word disbelieve there in the original Greek is active. It's continually active. In other words, it's done on purpose. These folks are not deceived. They know what they're doing. So don't confuse a passive disbelief out of ignorance or confusion with what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus talks about those who love darkness more than the light, he's not talking about the regular Joe who just hadn't figured it out yet. Jesus is identifying a specific group of people. He's talking about a disbelief that is an active choice. These people disbelieve on purpose. They are not deceived by a lack of information or even disinformation. They willfully deceive themselves. It's interesting that the psychiatric community calls this kind of behavior narcissism. It's where people get into the habit of lying to themselves and actually believing those lies to save their ego. Now, there are narcissistic Christians, too, but we're not talking about them right now. We'll get into that when we get to Paul's letters, because Paul nails them to the wall. But right now, we're talking about the narcissism of those who actively choose to disbelieve in Jesus. It's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. We may not see it, but God does. He knows the heart. That's why in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Didn't say it in his mind. It's not a mental thing. He said it in his heart. But by doing so, he makes himself out to be a fool. Mentally, he knows better. His mind knows better. But his heart says otherwise, and then he shapes his mind to accept a lie, forcing his view of reality to be what his heart wants it to be rather than what it actually is, even when the lie is ridiculous. That's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about serious evolutionists. You know, if you're a teenager or in your 20s and you've been taught your whole life by people who call themselves learned scientists that evolution is true, I can understand believing that. But it's the people who actually engage in the science, who actually study it, that just blow me away. Evolution is a theory that was scientifically disproven decades ago. And since then, it's been disproven over and over and over. The theory of evolution literally violates all of the laws of basic physics. I mean, basic physics. I've often joked with some folks online about this, adamant evolutionists, and I've I've told them, I said, look, if you don't want to believe in a creator, if you want to manufacture a lie to replace the evidence of design that's apparent to everybody, that's fine. I expect that, because the Bible said people would trade the truth for a lie. But can't you come up with something that is better than evolution? I mean, I mean, convince me. to Do a better job of convincing me because evolution violates all of the laws of logic and reason. And the more discoveries that are made to disprove it, the more foolish you look. But then I remembered what came after that line in Romans where it says that they trade the truth for a lie. It also said that while claiming to be wise, they make fools of themselves. And they worship the creation rather than the creator. Boy, what is that, if not the scientific priesthood's obsession 
an almost religious allegiance to the theory of evolution. The heart decides, not the mind. They'll believe a lie that violates their logical mind if their heart wants them to believe it bad enough. That's why Jesus said that they've been judged already. They're unreachable because technically they've already been reached and they chose to disbelieve. It's not that they weren't convinced. They were convinced. But because they love the darkness more than the light, they choose to disbelieve. And it's my opinion, it's my view, that what Jesus is talking about here is the foundation for what he called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3. He identified that act as an unforgivable sin. That's why he told Nicodemus that those who actively disbelieve, that they've been judged already. Not that they will be judged or that they're right for judgment. They've already been judged. A lot of confusion over what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit really is and why it's unforgivable. It's not unforgivable because it's so horrible and so evil that even God, with all of his love and forgiveness, can't forgive it. It's because the forgiveness itself that God offers is being purposefully rejected. Now, those of us who are already saved might ask, well, why would anybody do that? Well, Jesus told us why. He said they do it because they love the darkness more than the light. See, you can't love one thing more than something else unless you know about both of them. See, this isn't about deception. You can't hate one thing more than something else unless you know about both of them. Jesus said these people love the darkness more than the light. And in the original Greek, it means more than and instead of the light. See, they're trading out. But then Jesus said that those who love the light don't have a problem coming out into the light. Yeah, they're sinners, but they don't mind. They know they're going to get cleaned. And that's how Jesus ended his conversation with Nicodemus, and that's where we left off. So after 25 minutes, we're finally finished with the review of the last show. Okay, we're up to date. Let's get started. Jesus' ministry is in full swing now. He's already got a reputation for causing a scene at the temple in Jerusalem. He's healing people of terminal diseases, restoring crippled people's limbs, casting out demons, doing all kinds of miraculous wonders. So whatever happened to John the Baptist? Remember him? Jesus' cousin? The guy who was prophetically chosen to get things going and prepare the way for the Lord? Well, he's still out there baptizing folks. The way's been prepared, though. Jesus is no longer coming. He's here. So more and more people are skipping over to John and going straight to Jesus. But this causes a little problem with some of John's disciples. Let's get started in John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples, after this meaning after the conversation with Nicodemus, said, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land, the countryside of Judea, where he remained with them and baptized. But John was also baptizing at Nain near Salem, for there was an abundance of water there, and people kept coming and being baptized, for John hadn't been thrown into prison yet. Therefore there arose a controversy between some of John's disciples and a Jew in regard to purification. So they came to John, and they reported to him, said, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, and to whom you yourself have borne testimony, notice this, he is baptizing too. And everybody is flocking to him. John answered, A man can receive nothing except it's given to him from heaven. A man must be content to receive the gift which is given him from heaven. There is no other source. You yourselves are my witnesses. You personally bear me out that I stated I am not the Christ. But I have been sent in advance of Christ. 
to be his appointed forerunner, his messenger, his announcer. Wow, folks, this is John accepting his prophetic role. He was prophesied to be the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And John is saying that the way's been prepared. The Lord's here now. My job is finished. And there's nothing wrong with this. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Wow, listen to John. He's already giving a title to those who are saved, the bride of Christ. Who's the bride? The saved, the redeemed. Who's the groom? Jesus. And John's pointing all of this out here. He's saying, hey, I'm not the groom. I'm not the groom here, so it's only natural that the bride would stop visiting me to go visit the groom. I announced the arrival of the groom to his bride. Now that the groom is here, it's good that the bride go to him. What else would they do? He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the groomsman who stands by and listens to him rejoices greatly on account of the bridegroom's voice. This then is my pleasure and joy, and it is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He must grow more prominent, I must grow less so. Because he who comes from above is above all others. He who comes from the earth belongs to the earth and talks the language of the earth. His words are from an earthly standpoint. But he who comes from heaven is far superior to all others in prominence and excellence. It is to what he has actually seen and heard that he bears testimony. Wow, folks, listen to, listen to John talk about his cousin. This is absolutely incredible. He's saying, hey, I'm just a prophet, okay? I'm just passing along information that God told me to pass along. But Jesus has actually been there. He's actually seen and heard for himself what he's talking about. And yet no one accepts his testimony, John says. No one receives his evidence as true. But to those who do receive his testimony, they have set his seal of approval to this, that God is true. For since he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, God does not give him his spirit sparingly or by measure, but boundless is the gift that God makes of his spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given and entrusted and committed everything into his hand. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Let me read that last statement again for you, folks, in case you missed it. John said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He has it. As in, he possesses it now. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who disbelieves and refuses to trust the Son will never experience life. But instead, the wrath of God abides on him continually. Who's John talking about there, folks? Once again, those who continually choose to disbelieve. That's why God's indignation hangs over them continually for refusing to trust in Jesus. Not failing to trust him, but refusing to trust him. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit in his word puts everybody into two categories. Those who accept versus those who reject. Those who love the light versus those who hate it. Those who will escape judgment versus those who have been judged already. The Holy Spirit doesn't mention any moderates. There's no in-between stages here. We're going to see this pattern all throughout the Gospels, and I just wanted to lay the groundwork for you here, because I think that by the time we're finished, we're going to have a lot of controversial questions that are automatically answered by just paying attention to some doctrinal foundations that begin here in John chapter 3. And they continue to build all the way up to Paul's letters. But anyway, let's keep moving. Jesus is now baptizing. More people are flocking to him and to continue their chronology. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says that after John was arrested and put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So apparently the king had had enough of this 
nut who was out there in the wilderness causing all kinds of trouble. John was rebuking everybody to repentance, even the king. John publicly brought up the king's affair with his brother's wife. That couldn't have been good. The king had finally had enough of this, so he had him arrested. And, of course, the king didn't have to worry about any backlash from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because remember what happened when they went out to John to see him? John called them brood of vipers, sons of Satan. So the king probably even had the blessing of the religious leadership on this. Now, the king and the religious leaders will ultimately want Jesus arrested, too. They're already angry with him for causing the scene at the temple during the Passover festival. That was a big deal. But the planning of Jesus' arrest is in its infancy. Right now, since John's fame is dwindling and Jesus is increasing, they're content to just have John arrested. Matthew's report of John's arrest is in chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested and put in prison, he withdrew into Galilee. Luke's version of this doesn't mention the arrest of John, but simply states in chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus went back to Galilee under the power of the Holy Spirit, and the fame of him spread throughout the entire region and round about. John gives us a little in-depth insight into all of this and puts everything together. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, that when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had been told that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. So apparently, folks, when John was arrested, and this is so typical, somebody tried to make a defense for John by accusing Jesus. I mean, it's just typical. One kid gets in trouble for doing something. Others come to the defense of that kid by saying that somebody else is more guilty. You know? They arrested John the Baptist. The Pharisees never did like the idea of somebody coming in and stepping on their carefully tracked out religious ground. But when they arrested him, somebody apparently came along and said, but, 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 but Jesus is baptizing more disciples than John. So Jesus had to leave for Judea and return to Galilee. But on the way to Galilee, watch this next verse, folks. Verse 4. It says it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. The King James poetically translates the word necessary into two words. Must, needs. So this isn't a casual detour. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. He must, needs, go through Samaria. Why? Let's keep reading. John chapter 4, verse 4. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria, and in doing so, he arrived at a Samaritan town called Sychar. It was near the tract of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down to rest by the well. It was then about the sixth hour, about noon. It was about the sixth hour presently when a woman of Samaria came along to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, folks, remember in our last session, we talked about how Jesus pre-scheduled every detail of his mission to the earth before he came. That's why many places when people try to push Jesus into something, he'll say, my hour has not yet come. Even his arrest wasn't a surprise. Jesus, before becoming human, he was with the Father outside time. And he organized every little meeting, every little conversation, every little nuance of his mission. Jesus personally had it all planned out before he came. And this event is no different. Jesus went to Sychar at this particular time for this particular meeting with this woman. 
In verse 6, it says that when he got to the well, it was about the sixth hour. Now, the normal time that women went to the well was in the morning. But this woman chose to come to the well at noon. Why? After we keep reading, we're going to find out that she's somewhat of a social outcast. So instead of putting up with the glares and the whispers from all the other women, she decides to rearrange her schedule to get water from the well at noon to keep from having to put up with all the drama. And Jesus, being outside time before he came, he predestined his meeting with this woman. That's why in verse 4 it said that he must needs go to Samaria. And it was apparently a long walk to Sychar. Because by the time Jesus gets there, he's tired. I mean, he's tired. He has to sit down. But notice his timing is perfect. He arrives at the well the exact moment that this woman shows up. Folks, this woman's about to get saved, but notice who took the initiative. She wasn't seeking him out. She wasn't on her knees saying the sinner's prayer. She wasn't trying to get herself in some kind of spiritual mode of worship. She was just in the middle of going about her life, doing what she always did. And she had no way of knowing who was coming. We could learn a lot from that. Who reached out to who? And how did he do it? How did he reach out to her? Did he send one of his disciples? He could have, but he didn't. He went himself. He shows up to the well just as she does, and Jesus says to her, as she's there getting water, says, hey, give me some. For his disciples had gone off into the town to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me, a Samaritan, and a woman, for a drink? For the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Folks, without getting into too much boring history, the relationship between whites and blacks in America during the 1800s wouldn't hold a candle to the tension, the atmosphere that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans of Jesus' day. That's why she can't believe that he would even talk to her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you had only known and had recognized God's gift, and who this is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him instead, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with. You have no drawing bucket, and the well is very deep. How then can you provide living water? Where do you get your living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and who used to drink from it himself, and his sons and his cattle also? Jesus said, All who drink of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever takes a drink of the water that I will give him shall never, no, never be thirsty anymore. The water that I will give him shall become a spring of water welling up, flowing and bubbling continually within him for eternal life. Okay, folks, here we go. Pay attention to the symbolism. The symbols have already been defined at the wedding in Cana, so just pay attention here. Water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about spiritual rebirth again, the living water. And notice he said, whoever takes a drink of the living water shall never be thirsty again. Can you take a drink of the living water and be thirsty again? Some people think you can. Some people think you can lose your salvation. Some people think you can lose the Holy Spirit. Not if Jesus is telling the truth. But the woman's about to call him on this because she senses that Jesus isn't talking about physical water anymore. She knows he's using it as an idiom for something else, but she's not quite sure what he's talking about. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never get thirsty or have to come continually all the way here to draw. At this, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back here. The woman answered, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, You've spoken truly in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. In this you've spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I see and understand that you're a prophet. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where it's necessary and proper to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither merely in this mountain nor merely in Jerusalem. You Samaritans don't know what you're worshipping. You worship what you do not comprehend. We do know what we are worshipping. We worship what we have knowledge of and understand. For after all, salvation comes from among the Jews. Folks, what does that little statement mean? Because of our 21st century hindsight and understanding, we forget that what we call Christianity, it came from the Jews. We don't think of Christianity as a Jewish religion because the majority of today's Jews don't accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they separate themselves from the New Testament, and they focus on the Old Testament, and they call that Judaism. We make things worse by calling Christianity a Gentile religion that replaces the Old Testament. But both of us are wrong. Neither scenario is true. It's a continuation of the same religion. Just because we humans have separated it doesn't mean that it's really separate. It's the same thing. It all started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And it was through the children of Israel that we got our Bible. The birth of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, not Gentile prophecy. Jesus' crucifixion and the purpose behind it was all laid out in advance in the book of Isaiah, a Jewish prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus himself was a full-blooded Jew. He was prophesied to be the king of what? The king of Rome? No. The king of Israel. And that prophecy hadn't been fulfilled yet. One day it will be. Right now, Jesus isn't sitting on his own throne. He's sitting on his Father's throne. One day he will rule over the universe on his own throne. And that throne will be David's throne in Jerusalem, Israel. Now, someone might say, but Josh, I thought Paul told me that in the New Testament, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, you're neither Jew nor Gentile. Well, that's true, but that just means that you no longer have to be a Jew to be one of God's children. That was a big thing. See, God represented himself to the world through the Jews. And if you wanted to be a part of this, you had to ceremonially become a Jew. But we've been adopted into the family of God. Race no longer matters. But where did it all start? It didn't start with the Romans. They were the capital of the world for centuries. And they had all of their gods, but we don't pay any attention to that today. What about Egypt? They were the capital of the world for centuries, too. And they had all of their gods. But we don't pay any attention to that today. It started with Israel, the Jews. They're God's chosen people. And our Lord, who's currently sitting on his father's throne, he is a Jewish man. From Abraham all the way up to Jesus Christ, God chose to speak to the people of earth through Israel. And actually, he's still doing it today, folks, through the Bible. It's a Jewish book. And he will speak solely through Israel again during the Great Tribulation. So that's what Jesus means when he says salvation comes from the Jews. But then he continues in verse 23. He says, A time will come, however, indeed it is already here, when the true genuine worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking just such people as these as his worshipers. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. What's he talking about here, folks? He says God is a spirit and must be worshipped in spirit. What does that mean? 
When we use the word spirit, we commonly think of something that is less than physical, as though it's inferior to our physical reality. But that is not an accurate assumption. Jesus is accurate when he uses the word spirit, but because of our present-day ignorance of the language, a more scientific word for spirit could be superphysical or hyperdimensional. God's physics transcend the universe. See, you and me and the universe that we live in is three-dimensional. God is more than that. So if you attempt to worship God on a physical level, then you're not really worshiping him in truth. That's why Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman that placing a significance on where you worship is irrelevant. God transcends the universe. He's everywhere. He's a spirit being. And when you pray or worship, the physics of it are completely irrelevant. Some people believe that you have to be on your knees. Now, that might be a good idea out of reverence and humility. You know, you can never be too humble when you pray. But it's not necessary to be heard. Some people believe that you have to light a candle first. Why? Do you think that candle is like a light that lights up on God's switchboard in heaven as though without that candle he won't pick up, he won't know? Some people only pray using the King James English. They pray long and solemnly with King James English. Why? Well, it's out of reverence. Okay, fine. If that's how you choose to show reverence and humility to God while talking with Him, that's great. But make sure that that's the real reason and not a hang-up of some kind. God was listening to prayers for more than 5,000 years before King James English was ever invented. Some people believe that you have to pray in tongues. They call that praying in the Spirit. But I'm sorry... The Bible never called it that. The sound that you make while you pray is irrelevant to how your prayer gets to God's ears. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 says that it's the Holy Spirit himself who intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Amplified translates that unspeakable yearnings and groanings that are too deep for utterance. Some people actually think that this verse, Romans 8.26, is talking about praying in tongues, but it's not. How do I know? Because Romans 8.26 says it's the Holy Spirit, not you, but the Holy Spirit who's doing the interceding. And how is he interceding? He's interceding with unspeakable yearnings and groanings that are too deep for utterance. When you're praying in tongues, can you hear it? Are you making any noises, any sounds? If so, then you can't really apply Romans 8.26, can you? Because it says the groanings are too deep for utterance. They can't be heard pointed this out to a friend of mine, and he said, Josh, isn't groaning a sound? And I said, well, our groanings are. But Romans 8.26 isn't talking about our groanings. It's talking about the Holy Spirit interceding between us and the Father. It's his groanings that Romans 8.26 is talking about. And when it tells me that those groanings are too deep for utterance, that also tells me that whatever frequency the Holy Spirit's using, it cannot be heard by anyone but the Father. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. The point is, whatever we pray and however we pray, it's the Holy Spirit who takes that and then interprets it to the Father. What activates that translation has got nothing to do with how you speak your prayer, be it in English, King James English, or gibberish. The Holy Spirit doesn't need for you to light a candle first or kneel down in a church. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing any of those things, but if you think they're necessary to be heard, then you'll be inclined to not pray when you really need to pray. 
It's a stumbling block. Jesus said God is a spirit being and people must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus is saying get real. All this religious BS gets in the way. The good news is if you've been reborn in the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you and goes everywhere you go. So it makes no difference where you are, what you're doing, how you're doing it, what you say or how you say it. The Holy Spirit takes that prayer, takes that worship and translates it to the Father. And I'm really glad that he does, because sometimes I can't put into words how I'm feeling when I pray. Sometimes I've got an issue that to me is so complicated, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's just so complicated that I don't even know where to begin. Sometimes I've got a novel's worth of information that I just had to get off my chest, but I don't know where to begin, I don't know how. The Holy Spirit does. I don't ever have to worry about God misunderstanding me. I'll do the best I can. God will get it. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither merely in this mountain nor merely in Jerusalem. A time will come, indeed it is already here, when the true genuine worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking just such people as these as his worshipers. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit. Continuing on, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he arrives, he will tell us everything we need to know and make it clear to us. Jesus said to her, I who now speak with you am he. Just then his disciples came and they wondered to find him talking with a woman. However, not one of them asked him, what are you inquiring about? You know, what do you, what do you want with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went away to the town. And she began telling the people, Come see a man who's told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Must not this be the Messiah, the Anointed One? So the people left the town and they set out to go to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he assured them and said, I have nourishment of which you know nothing and have no idea. So the disciples said to one another, Has somebody brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My nourishment is to do the will, the pleasure of him who sent me and to accomplish and completely finish his work. Do you not say that it is still four months until harvest time comes? Look, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields and see how they are already white for harvesting. Already the reaper is getting his wages. He who does the cutting now has his reward, for he is gathering a crop unto eternal life, so that he who does the planting and he who does the reaping may rejoice together. For in this the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap a crop for which you have not toiled. Other men have labored, and you have stepped in to reap the results of their work. Now numerous Samaritans from that town believed and trusted him because of what the woman said when she declared and testified. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans arrived, they asked him to remain with them, and he did stay there for two days. Then many more believed, adhered, and trusted him because of his personal message. And they told the woman, Now we no longer believe just because of what you said. For we've heard him ourselves personally. And we know that he truly is the Savior of the world, the Christ. Neat little story here recorded in John's version. And you won't find it in the other three, folks. You also won't find Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in the other three. There's something special about these two meetings that John felt necessary to record. And there's a lot of detail in these conversations. A lot that can be learned from what Jesus said to both of them. But once you've finished these two stories, 
and then back away from them, kind of like going to the other side of the room to look at a painting on the wall. You'll notice a huge contrast between these two stories that in and of itself will tell you something. John may have done this on purpose to symbolically teach something to the reader who notices it, and then again, John may have not done this on purpose. This might be something that the Holy Spirit maneuvered into John's account as he was writing it. Holy Spirit does that a lot throughout the scriptures to prove that God is ultimately the author of the text. But in this case, you know, I say maybe because John could have noticed the symbolism in the contrast as it happened so that when he recorded it, he made certain to allow those contrasts to be seen to the reader. We don't know, but here's what I'm talking about. Which meeting took place first? Nicodemus, the Jew. The meeting with the Samaritan woman took place second. Nicodemus was a man, and his name is recorded in the narrative. The Samaritan at the well was a woman, and her name isn't recorded. She's unnamed. Nicodemus was highly respected. He had rank. He was more than just a Pharisee. He was a leader of the Pharisees. But the woman at the well, she had no respect. She had no rank. She's drawing water, and she even does that at an unusual time of day to avoid being seen. Nicodemus was a favored Jew. The woman was a despised Samaritan. Nicodemus sought Jesus out. But Jesus sought the woman out. Nicodemus sought Jesus out at night. Jesus sought the woman out in the middle of the day. Nicodemus spoke to Jesus first. Jesus spoke to the woman first. Nicodemus never mentioned that he or anyone else was expecting the coming of the Messiah. But the woman at the well was. She said, I know that when, not if, but when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. Jesus basically taught the same message to both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, but the mood and the style is different. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus directly, using the Old Testament titles and the language, born again, the serpent in the desert, the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke to the woman using the water as a symbol, an idiom for the Holy Spirit, giving eternal life. He said, you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will never be part of the kingdom of God. It almost sounds like a rebuke. And as the conversation continues several times, Jesus criticizes Nicodemus for not understanding. Remember, he said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? But here, with the woman at the well, Jesus is very kind, very patient, even politely condescending. And one last contrast between the two is the end results. After Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, what happened? We really don't know. John doesn't tell us anything about what happened after that conversation. John didn't tell us what Nicodemus' final response was to what Jesus shared with him. And from that, we can assume... All kinds of things. We can assume nothing happened because nothing's recorded, but we really don't know. But contrast that to the reception in Sychar. The woman at the well, the moment he tells her that he's the Messiah, she drops her water pot and runs into the town. She forgets all about her social shame. She forgets all about her embarrassment and her status. And she tells everybody everything. They all come running back together. She's no longer ashamed and alone. And the excitement of the news that she brought them made the town forget their opinion of her. They all came together. And they all got saved. Now let's look at some of the neat little mystic stuff that the Holy Spirit drops in this little story for fun. 
Remember how Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine symbolized our salvation in Jesus? How we were symbolized by the six empty water pots of stone? The woman came to the well at the sixth hour. She was incomplete. It says that she was coming to fill her empty water pot with water. Jesus engages her in a conversation and tells her about living water. If you were turning their conversation into a script for a play, you would be astonished to discover that Jesus spoke to her seven times. She spoke to him six times. She's incomplete, but Jesus is the completion. Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding because all of those who've been purchased by Jesus are given the title the Bride of Christ. That's why he chose to perform that at a wedding. This story of the woman at the well is the very first report of Jesus seeking someone out to save them. And it's a woman symbolizing the greater whole body of people who are saved called the Bride of Christ. And the name of the town that all of this takes place in is called Sychar. The name Sychar means purchased. Jesus purchased our freedom with his blood. He purchased the freedom of his bride. And that's where we're going to leave it today, folks. Next time we'll continue right where we left off. We'll get into the healing of the nobleman's son. And we'll take it from there. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. We're out of here.